let's remain standing. We're going to read uh, from the book of Esther. We've come to chapter 6. Normally, I like to just read this without any comment, but this chapter 6 is kind of the height of the narrative tension here. So uh, track, track with us. Remember where we've been. Things have been getting worse and worse and worse for the Jews. Esther's queen. She went in. She was going to tell uh, the king to ask him to save her people. And she said, let's have a feast tomorrow. And so we're left in this moment. Haman goes out. He builds this gallows. He's about to kill Mordecai. Everything's about to be over for the Jews. That's kind of where we're at. Chapter 6, verse 1. On that night... That night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said, Haman, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And so Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head and face covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story. Open our eyes and our hearts to it now that you would uh, grace us with insight into your work uh, in the world around us. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. So last week we focused on chapter 5 
and looked at the, the reality that in this book, the name of God is not mentioned, which we've been saying all along. This is kind of part two of that. If you haven't listened to that part, I encourage you to go do that. But the two things, as a quick recap, that we said was that this absence of God's name, absence of any reference or mention to God or worship or prayer or anything having to do with God, is purposeful by the author in order to make a point. And the two points that I, that I pointed out for us last week was that this is often the way that life feels. It often feels like God is not mentioned, right? You don't get notifications when God is at work around you. Um, and we often feel like God's not present. And so it connects with us on that level. But it also confronts our expectations about the way that God is supposed to be doing what he's doing and what he may or may not do and when or how he's going to do it. And so that absence uh, is, is on purpose to help us engage with those two, those two things. But I made a, a comment, an argument, uh, last week, and that was that in the midst of leaving God's name out, the author is actually screaming at us to pay attention to God. So that's the argument that I want to make today. That's, that's what I want to show you from this text, is that he creates this God vacuum, if you will, where God is not present, not, he's not like out in front, and so you will go looking for him. He needs to fill it up with something. I was trying to come up with a real-world illustration of that, and I'm sure this isn't the best one, but I thought of those Lexus December to Remember commercials where like someone comes down the stairs and they're expecting to find a bunch of presents under the tree, but there's no presents there. And so that, that vacuum, that void of presents creates this like, well, what, what's going on? And then the camera like pans and there's like Lexus keys on the counter. And there's like a pointer to something bigger and better that's behind the scenes. It's happening. That's kind of what I think is going on in the book of Esther. When we come to read it and we're looking for God to save his people and he's not there, what's going to happen? He's, the, the, the author is going to point us in, in a direction towards God. It's a very much a, uh, a let the reader understand book. I mean, if you've seen that, you like, you, you read a sentence in a, in a, in a book and, or a, an article, and then it just has, says, let the reader understand. And it's saying, there's something you need to know about this, but I'm not going to spell it out for you. And that's what's going on. There's something here to pay attention to, but let the reader understand. I'm not going to spell it out. You need to go look between the lines. And between the lines, the author is teaching us to look for God, to see the unseen and invisible hand of God. So I want you to see how the author does this and then what it, what it means for us and how we might be able to, to benefit from it. So there's two main ways in the text that the author, uh, there's a lot I think, but the two big ways I want to point out, two things that he's doing in order to draw your attention towards this God vacuum, in order to help you see God, is the, this, these occurrences of coincidence throughout the entire book. If we, there's a lot in this very chapter, we'll get there in a second, but even going back to the beginning of the book, He's kind of highlighting these coincidental things that we're not sure why they happen, right? There's these feasts. All of a sudden, Xerxes just sort of like randomly fires his queen. Like, we don't know why that happened. It was sort of weird for that to happen. It's very coincidental. Then all of a sudden, Esther is kind of rounded up and taken away. We're not really sure why that happens. And then she, she rises to favor. It was very coincidental why, why that would happen. Um, then we get into... The fact that Mordecai just happens to overhear this plot to kill the king and saves the king's life. Like, this is completely random that that happens. He was like, right place, right time, I guess. We don't really know. And then in this chapter, he just stacks up the coincidences on top of each other, right? So verse 1 is like, and that night the king couldn't sleep. You know, like, that's a completely insignificant detail. Right? But that night the king couldn't sleep, and he wakes up and he's like, I need some bedtime reading. I need some stories to put me to sleep. Go get the history of my own life and read it to me. So they get it out and they start reading, and it says, 
and it was found how Mordecai had told the king. It's like very coincidental. Why did they read that line? Why did they turn to that page? There's a lot of things that have happened. Why is that the thing that the king is hearing about on this random night when he can't sleep? And then he, he says, well, we got a you know, Persian culture. You needed to honor someone who had done something for you. And he realizes this hasn't been done. So he's like, we got to do this. And he goes, okay, so we need one of my people. One of my people, I need, to, I need to figure out what I'm supposed to do for this person. So who's out there? Well, it happens to just be Haman, right? A very critical character to this story. And there's, he's stacking up these coincidences. And then there's even the coincidence that when Haman comes in, Haman goes, oh, this is, he's, he's wanting to honor me. He's just, he, stacks them, he stacks them all up. And along with that, all the way along, there's this, he, the author uses the passive voice all the time. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, where Mordecai, it says, had been carried away. Esther was taken away. Then the plot just came to Mordecai. It doesn't say how. It doesn't say what Mordecai was doing. He, like, all of a sudden, he just happens to find out about this. And then in, in our text today, you have this passive voice where on that night the king couldn't sleep. And the, the, the text in Hebrew is really interesting because it says, and that night sleep fled from the king. Like it's not the king doing anything. The sleep is doing something to him. The active participant here is the sleep not wanting to be there. And then it says, and it was found written. It's passive voice. Like the characters in this story have no idea what's going on. Like there's just stuff happening to them and they don't understand why or what, or how. And on their own, all of those coincidences might just be random. They could just be coincidences. But when you're writing a story and you just stack them up, coincidence after coincidence after coincidence after coincidence, they begin to have this cumulative effect that something is going on that's unseen. There's some kind of control, there's some kind of orientation, there's some kind of order and purpose behind what's going on. A commentator named uh, Kleins says, Haman's decision to speak to the king in the morning about having Mordecai hanged meets with a set of coincidences so remarkable that they can hardly be anything but the narrator's cipher or key for divinely arranged. In other words, what he's saying is when you read this, the author wants you to read this and be like, this must be God. God must be in this because there's no other way that these coincidences could happen like this and it just be random. There's no way that this can be random. So the first thing that the author does is he, he builds up these coincidences in such a way that it makes you question, is there something bigger going on? Is there a bigger purpose? You're like, well, coincidences happen all the time. You've heard crazy stories. You watch the news. You read books. Coincidences happen all the time. Maybe, maybe, he's not, maybe that just happens to be what happened in the story. So here's the second thing the author does to not let you get away with objecting to that. It's how he arranges the entire story. And you know, we, we oftentimes we think about transferring content with content. We tell you a message. But the arrangement of things can also communicate something. Right? You go into a wedding reception, you don't really need to know who, who's who. You can just tell by the, the way the room is laid out. Who knows the bride and the groom better? Just by the arrangement of the tables. You go to a Thanksgiving dinner, and at the center is the turkey, and then like the further away you get from the turkey, the less important the items are. Right? Like the arrangement communicates something, and that's true in literature as well. And so the author here um, uses literature in order, lit, lit, literary structure in order to communicate something to us when we read this this book. And I'm going to get a little teachy here for the first time. I think at Redeemer I've brought some slides. Okay, you ready for some slides? Okay, I got some slides. So. 
There's a, there's a literary structure that's very common in the Bible called a chiasm. Okay, go ahead, Molly. A chiasm is where uh, ideas are first presented A, B, and C, and then they're presented in the re- reverse order. C, B, A. You see that? It starts over here, it kind of goes down like this, and then it goes up. And sometimes there's a, there's a lone one in the middle that doesn't have a repeat. A lot, but it can also just be down and back up. Like a really simple, common form of this is like parallelism, where Jesus says, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. It's parallelism. It, it helps, it's, it's reinforcing, it's kind of creating meaning just by the structure of what it says. And this is, it's called chiasm because the Greek letter chi is an X. Okay, so... That's where we get the, that's where, why it's called that. It doesn't have any meaning beyond that because it looks like an X if you were to, to follow it along. And this happens to be all over the Bible. It's, it's literally crazy. Hebrew speech actually followed this pattern like Hebrew people would speak in, a, in an ABBA pattern. And so the, it's not surprising that, it, that it's all over. The, the whole flood narrative is in this structure where things are repeated and then they're repeated back the other direction. The book of Ruth is structured where things are repeated and then they're repeated back in the other way. You find it inside individual verses in Psalms and Proverbs. You find it all over the place. The book of Matthew has a number of these in it. Now, this can be overdone. You can be, there's, you know, people that really get into this, they start, they start acting like conspiracy theorists and there's like a chiasm in every single verse and every single word in the Bible. So, so this can be overdone, but it's without doubt that this is all over the structure of the Bible. And it, and it creates meaning, because one of the main things that happens in a chiasm, especially when you have something that's set off on its own, is that that thing that's on its own is what the author is trying to tell you is important. All the other things focus down and point to the, to the thing that's left alone. So I want you to see that this is in the structure of Esther. So let's start top. Okay, next slide, Molly. Here we go. So here's the very basic chiastic structure of Esther. We started in chapter 1, and you have these two great feasts. Remember, they had the six-month-long feast, and then you have another feast that follows that. Um, and then we, were just, we just read last week about Esther's first feast. Now we have our chapter here where the king can't sleep. And then you have Esther's second feast that we'll find out about next week. And then at the end of the book, you have this establishment of two feasts for the Jews to remember this entire event. Okay, this establishment, the book was partially written in order to convince Jewish people to celebrate these two feast days to remember this whole occurrence. So feasts are very important. Actually, I was looking more carefully, and there's actually between here, there's actually another set of feasts that's in between. So there's three on one side, then the king can't sleep in the middle, and then three feasts about the other side. You're like, oh, okay, well, some feasts may have happened. It's, feasts are pretty common. That, that might not be. Are you sure there's a chiasm there? Okay, next slide. Okay, so if you start at the beginning... You have the splendor of Xerxes is talked about. Then you get your feasts. Then Mordecai saves Xerxes. Then Haman rises to power. Then Haman decreed to destroy the Jews. Then Esther and Mordecai plan to reverse that decree. And then Esther has a first feast, and then the king can't sleep. The second half of the book follows that order exactly. And most of these things, and Mike Quint is going to preach on this in two weeks, are reversals of the thing that happened on the first side. It's not just A and A and B and B. It's A and the opposite of A and B and the opposite of B. It's very clear that this is happening, right? Haman rises to power. Mordecai rises to power. There's this flip-flop structure that's pointing down to a certain event, the event at the middle that doesn't have a duplicate, and that is that the king can't sleep. You're like, well, if you're still not sure, go ahead, Molly. Okay, This is intentionally small so that you can't see it. I, there's, there's so many things. Look, the king gives Haman his ring. 
the king gives Mordecai his ring. I picked the one that has a spelling error in it. Haman summons the scribes. Mordecai summons the scribes. The matchingness of this book in a chiastic form is utterly amazing. It's so intentional to, to clarify that what's bad on this side is now good on this side. Okay, and the, that reversal has its own name. It's its own theological concept that we're going to talk about later. But right now I want you to see what it's pointing at. The center of the action in the book of Esther is what? Chapter 6, the king can't sleep. Okay, I don't know if you've been taught the book of Esther before, but I was not taught in Sunday school that the center of the book of Esther was the king can't sleep. Right, we think it's, it's Mordecai saving the king or Esther going into the king. There's all these other things that the characters do that we think are important. But the entire narrative is structured to point to this chapter. The king can't sleep. Haman randomly comes in after the king randomly learns about Mordecai saving him and decides he's going to do something about it. The pivot point of the text is the king can't sleep. Why? Why is the pivot point of this story a set of coincidences that none of the characters has any control over? It's like the big neon flashing arrow at chapter 6. It diverts all of our attention away from the human characters. Neither Mordecai or Esther play any active role in this in this chapter. Mordecai does two things. He gets paraded around, and then he goes back to the gate. That's it. Esther's not even mentioned in this chapter. This is the center point of the book, the most important happening, the turning point, the pivot, the thing that the book is about. And neither Esther or Mordecai are there. It's not Esther's faith or her courage. It's not Mordecai's faith or courage that's being highlighted. In fact, even Esther in chapter 5, she goes in and she does this. She, you know, if I perish, I perish. That's the if you get here one sermon on Esther, that's what you'll hear the sermon on. If I perish, I perish. And Esther goes in and she's like, eh, let's have another feast tomorrow. And at that point in the story, you're like, this could still go very badly. She could ask the king at the feast, will you save my people? And he's like, no, get out. Remember, he just did that to a different queen. So, like, there's, there's, zero, there's zero, you know, uh, confidence that this story is going in a positive direction. And then all of a sudden, bam, chapter 6. Coincidences. Because the author is pointing as loudly and as, you know, this is, in Hebrew, this is screaming out. The point of this passage is chapter 6. God is at work. The king can't sleep. In fact, there's a Hebrew version or a Greek version of the, of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. You may have heard of this. And in the Septuagint, the authors, because they're Jews, actually change the first verse to say, and the Lord took sleep from the king, because they, they understood the point so well that they put God's name back in. Because what they're reading is, oh, God is here. Not so many words, let the reader understand. God is here. God is at work. This is God's show. This isn't about Esther and Mordecai. This is God's doing. And so sometimes not saying something, in this case the name of God, is actually way more rhetorically powerful than saying it in order to convince us and to show us that in a very interesting way, God is at work. Between the coincidences and the structure, the content and structure, Haman's plans, says one commentator, are about to run head-on into the providence of God. Now, if you live in Charlotte, you've heard the word providence. You use it all the time, every day. 
Right? There's, there's things named Providence all over the city. It's most likely because back in the 18th century, there was, I think it's seven. They were called the Seven Sisters, seven Presbyterian churches that were kind of around town that, that structured and rooted the church life of our city back in 1750 or something like that. Um, several of them are still around. But the, the Presbyterians, they understand Providence. Okay, here's from the Westminster Confession of Faith, so Westminster Shorter Catechism, which I had to memorize at seminary. I went to RTS, which is Presbyterian Seminary, and it says this. Uh, question 11 is about what is God's providence, and it says, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Ron, you could, probably, you could probably recite that for us too, right? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. I don't know how that sits with you, but that is the biblical view of God, period. Esther, case in point, the entire book is written to convince you that God is at work governing wisely and carefully and securely all of his creatures and all of their actions. One commentator says it's maybe the most striking biblical statement of the providence of God. I love the way he puts this. He says, when we talk about the providence of God, we mean that God in some invisible and inscrutable way, it's invisible and it's unable for us to, be, to understand. He governs all creatures, all actions, all circumstances through the normal and ordinary course of human life without the intervention of the miraculous. That's what God is doing. That's the kind of God that we serve, a God who invisibly and inscrutably governs all his creatures and all their actions. That's the point of the book of Esther. Now, when I say that, I often hear two primary objections to, to making that claim about God. The first one is, goes along the lines of, well, do, if, God, if that's what God is doing, then doesn't that make me a robot? This is an objection trying to preserve human agency. Shouldn't I get to decide what I do and how I do it? And if, and if God has say over that, doesn't that make me into a robot? My first response to that Objection is, you don't want that. If, if left to the human agency of, in this book, the human agents would be dead and the Jews would be wiped out. That's kind of the point. Okay, so you, I'm not sure you want that, but in, let's just say for the sake of argument, you really want to be able to do whatever you want to do. This understanding of, of human agency as being violated by God's agency is a very big view of man and a very small view of God. Do you think God who made you out of the dirt is able to control and preserve all things while preserving your agency as a human being. That's the kind of God presented in the Bible, a God who does both, who says to you, you have freedom. You, in, this, in this text, God is not making people do anything. Like from, from the human character's perspectives in this book, they are doing whatever they want. And in fact, they are doing whatever they want. They're also doing what God wants. I can't tell you how that works. That's why it's invisible and inscrutable. God's power and presence. That's, that's the objection about human agency. And there's a lot of, if you want to have a philosophical discussion about that, I'm open to it. Number two, um, there's an objection that says, well, doesn't this make God the author of evil? Like, does, isn't, if God is in control of all things, isn't he in control of bad things? And this is, this is an objection that wants to preserve human responsibility. 
If, if humans do bad things, shouldn't they be at fault for them? It's pretty clear reading this story that God holds Haman responsible for the bad things that he did. Again, I'm not sure logically how we uh, understand this, but the scriptures are very clear. God is, God is present. He is powerful. He is in control. And yet at the same time, when people like Haman do wrong things, God holds them accountable. There's a fascinating story about Cyrus. I don't know if I mentioned this in a sermon or if this was in conversation recently, but there's a story uh, in Chronicles where the Israelites disobey, and so God tells the Israelites, I'm going to send King Cyrus to go destroy you and punish you for doing bad things. And so the next scene is Cyrus waking up and being like, you know what, I want to go kill the Israelites today. So he goes over and he kills the Israelites, and God says to the Israelites, look, I did. I did what I said I was going to do. I punished you. And he says to Cyrus, how dare you kill my people? Holding Cyrus responsible for his evil while using evil to do, accomplish his purposes. One of my professors always said, God handles sin sinlessly. It's like an author of a book, right? C.S. Lewis is not evil because he wrote the white witch into the story. The white witch is part of the story. God is the author. That, it, it's, that's a good metaphor because God is so much outside of us. We treat him like a human being when we expect him to act like us. He's bigger and, and more complicated and more inscrutable than we can even imagine. This story is right in that interplay between divine and human agency. Both are here. Both are taught through the entirety of Scripture. Even in the most pagan corner of the world, says Karen Jobes, God is ruling all things to the benefit of his people and to the glory of his name. Faith in that kind of God is the goal of Esther. Just a couple of application points here. First is that this is not just a historical story. It is historical, it's true written down, but it's, it is paradigmatic. It is a template, a way to help us understand how we might see our world. If God is at work like this for his people in Esther, he's at work like this in the world right now on behalf of his people, which is the church. And so as we read this, as we understand this structure and understand how to look and see God when he's not mentioned, it should help and equip us to go out into the world and look and see where God is and what he's doing. God does show up, right? God showed up in Christ. The Hebrews 1 says, God used to speak in all these ways. Now he has spoken in his son. God has showed up. He has done the hardest, most important thing there is to do, and that's the atonement of the cross and the resurrection. God has showed up. But now as we walk out in the, in the midst of that, we live in a world that's a lot more like the world of Esther, where we don't see God in person. And this book helps us realize that those coincidences, those things happening around us, those unexplained circumstances, those are God at work. Now, brief warning, because a lot of times when we talk about this kind of thing, the application that we make is to then like, go out and look for coincidences and be like, oh, God's there, and God's there, and God did this, and we start assigning things to God. And I want you to notice that that is exactly not what the book of Esther does. He, he doesn't say, and the Lord woke the king up from sleep. He doesn't say that. Right? He lets it stand as a coincidence, and he allows the mystery of what God is doing to stand. So don't run out there and try and like point out all these coincidences, try and figure out God and get him back into the box where you can manage him. The point of the coincidence is that we don't know. The author doesn't say why it's all happening. He just wants you to believe that God is there. 
And so when we go out, we, we're not the reader of our own story. We're a character. Esther and Mordecai have no idea what's happening. You imagine Mordecai sitting at the gate, and Haman, who like, he knows is trying to kill him, walks out and dresses him up in a robe and marches around the city. He doesn't know what just happened. He's just, he's just in, he's in the flow of it, and that's often how we experience it. And as we experience life like that, we can believe that God is at work, even if we can't understand it. The other warning is, you know, this nice little U-shape where everything was bad and now everything's good. That's not a story for your life. That's the story of God in the world, redeeming all things. Many, many times, our lives just look like the left side of that, because we're only one tiny part in the big story. We want it to be all about us. We want our life to be the chiasm of reversals. But that's not what the book is promising. The book is promising that God is doing that in the world, and we are part of that as we have faith in him. So don't go, don't, don't, don't take what I'm saying and go out and think that your life is going to have this nice, pretty structure while by the time you die, everything's perfect. That's not, that's not the point. Right? The point is that God is at work in the world on behalf of his people. We only see tiny, small parts of that. The other application that I want to end with is this leads us to and should lead us to embrace just the wonder and the mystery of God's kingdom in the world. Like we want it to be neat and clean. We want to be able to say there it is and here it is and here's how it should work and we want to control it, but God will not be put in a box like that. He is working in all kinds of ways that you cannot even imagine, doing things that you cannot even imagine. If, if waking the king up from sleep is absolutely essential to this story. Do you think that certain tweets could be part of the story of God? Can you use your imagination to believe that God is at work in those things that you don't understand? Use your sanctified imagination that God is among us. It's like there's a story, um, there's a part in the Narnia story in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where the characters, the, the four kids, they don't know about Aslan yet. And they come to the beaver. You remember the beaver? That's who kind of like walks them through, like navigates their, through, the, through the world of Narnia. And the beaver says to them, they say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he's already landed. And C.S. Lewis writes, and now a very curious thing happened. None of the children who knew Aslan any more than you do, but the moment beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Like, they don't even know who he is. They haven't seen him. They don't know he's a lion. But they know that he's there, and he's moving, and it changes the way they experience the world. There's this mystery and wonder to the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus says, what should I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like a mustard seed, the tiniest of seeds planted in the ground, and it grows to the point where all the birds are making their nests in the tree. That's the kingdom of God. We can't contain it and control it. We receive the kingdom of God. It's miraculous and it's mysterious. And God's work is so often invisible and inscrutable. And that should create so much hope and encouragement in our lives. Because we, we don't need to be able to label everything. We don't need to be able to put God is doing this and God is doing this and God is doing this. But to know that God is at work even when we can't see his name. So much encouragement and hope in it. So let's use this book, this, this book of Esther, this story, to help us see and experience, using it as a template to, to understand how we should see the unseen God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for this story. Thank you for the, uh, the irony and the humor and the tension that's in it that draws us in and um, helps convince us that you, uh, you may be and you are at work among us in our own stories.
Give us faith. Uh, build us up so that we will, will know, um, as the Apostle John wrote, that we are know that we have eternal life. We pray that as uh, we walk throughout our days and our weeks, that you would comfort and encourage us, that you would draw us to yourself and remind us of your uh, steadying, faithful, invisible hand. We pray that as we give uh, this week um, our time and our tithes and our offerings and uh, all that we are, that you would remind us that we do that as a response uh, to the God who made us out of dust in order to be in fellowship with him. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.